Hello and welcome to the Tuesday, December 12, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone, to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz trumpeter, vocalist, composer, arranger, producer, and educator, Danny Yonokuchi. Danny Yonokuchi is a multi-talented jazz artist based in New York City and Los Angeles. Few artists are as diversely involved in their craft. He has been recognized for his performance on two Grammy award-winning projects, and you can hear his compositions and world-class arrangements in renowned jazz clubs listen to albums he has arranged and produced, and hear him perform on Broadway stages. His highly anticipated big band album, Voices, on the Outside in Music label, is available everywhere and features 11 jazz vocalists. In 2020, he was unanimously named winner of the inaugural Count Basie Great American Swing Contest by a panel of noteworthy judges. Downbeat Magazine remarked, the music is expertly executed and offers an infectious kinetic quality. Danny was also the recipient of the 2020 ASCAP Foundation Louis Armstrong Award. Danny currently leads the Danny Yonokuchi Big Band, a 17-piece collection that performs Danny's original works, and Danny Yonokuchi and the Revisionists, a six-to-nine-piece swing band dedicated to performing for the international Lindy Hop community and have a classic swing sound you wouldn't think possible. Composing and arranging have always been Danny's passion, 
and his well-crafted arrangements have been performed by an incredible array of artists, including Lady Gaga, Catherine Russell, Grammy-nominated vocalist Nicole Zaretis, Hannah Gill, the Duke Ellington Legacy, the Budapest Scoring Orchestra, the Jazz Orchestra of Philadelphia, the Terrell Stafford Quintet, Brian Newman, Charles Turner and Uptown Swing, the Christian Wiggs Big Band, the Ulysses Owens Jr. Big Band, the Birdland Big Band, the South Philly Big Band, Svetlana, and Peter Bernstein. Danny contributed to two Grammy award-winning projects with the Generation Gap Orchestra and the 8-Bit Big Band and has performed on Broadway stages, dozens of studio albums, subbed with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, and can be heard trumpeting on the acclaimed game Red Dead Redemption 2. His playing has also been featured on PBS, NPR, HBO, and Good Morning America. Danny has performed on distinguished stages including the Walt Disney Concert Hall, Broadway's Lyceum Theater, Birdland Jazz Club, The Blue Note, New York City, Dizzy's Club at Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Bimhaus in the Netherlands, and the North Sea Jazz Festival. A frequently traveling musician, Danny has performed in the United Kingdom, South Korea, Israel, Germany, Spain, Italy, Croatia, Sweden, Switzerland, and Belgium. Danny is originally from Los Angeles and holds a master's degree in composition from the Aaron Copeland School of Music at Queens College. With the support of the Sir Roland Hanna Memorial Scholarship and was the recipient of the Boyer Alumni Award as an undergraduate from Temple University's Boyer College of Music and Dance. His notable mentors include jazz luminaries Terrell Stafford, Dick Oates, Luis Bonilla, Bruce Barth, and John Swanna. He has studied composition and arranging with Michael Philip Mossman, John Clayton, Darcy James Argu, Norman David, and David Berger. His early champions were Matt Fenders, David Washburn, Ira Napus, and John Mosley. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Danny Yonokuchi. Hello, Danny. Hello, hello. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's uh, really great to have the opportunity to talk with you and to have you as a guest uh, on my podcast. I've really been looking forward to this, and uh, I'm looking forward to a great discussion that we're going to have. Um, I'd like to just, you know, strike while the iron's hot, jump right into it, and let's talk about your latest album, Voices. Uh, I, I would tell you in my listening uh, to the recording, I, it's just a wonderful swinging 
set that uh, I've really enjoyed listening to. And, uh, and uh, so what I'm curious about though, is yeah. that you use a different singer on every track. So what is the, what was the concept or the motivation behind working with a different singer on each track? Yeah. Well, first, thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you liked the music. It, it was a huge, huge project putting this whole thing together. Um, I've kind of been playing my own big band music in New York city for the last uh, 11 years that I've been living here. And, you know, when I went into the studio originally, I, I think I'm saying this for the first time, but uh, we went in and just recorded a ton of music and didn't really have a vision of what, who was going to do what and how things were going to shake out. We just wanted to record all this music that I had written. And at first I thought, oh, it'd be nice to have a few of the vocalists that I work with and perform with regularly. Um, these people include like Alexa Barshini, who performs in some of my other small groups. Mm -hmm. This includes um, one of my great friends, Charles Turner, vocalist, who uh, we've worked together on some of uh, both of our projects over the number of the years. Uh, so people that I've collaborated with, that I'm friends with. Um, and then it turned into like four or five people. And then I thought, you know, wow, like Nicole Zoraitis, um, mm -hmm. I've been writing some charts for her over the years. It'd be wonderful to have her. And then I mm -hmm. thought about yeah, Hannah Gill, who I've been working with for years, and Tahira Clayton. And then I was just like, wait a minute. <laughs> We've already got so many singers. We could just get one on every track. And and it really kind of snowballed from there in this really natural way where I it it wasn't hard for me to come up with 11 singers that I love and all live in New York City. It was just mm -hmm. like, oh, like all of these people that I perform with, that I collaborate with, um, we're just all so, so interested in doing a project like this, that it really came together in this special way. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I imagine it, it was fun. I've interviewed uh, Nicole. Yes. She's, uh, actually, she was my first guest of 2023. I interviewed her oh, probably about a year ago, I guess now. And, and I've also known Dan for, for a while. Uh, yeah. Dan and I actually, it's, it's funny how we struck up a conversation on, facebook messenger he was stuck on the subway or something and i think we conversed back and forth for almost 45 minutes or so and then when i started learning more about his group and then found out about his relationship with nicole and i got interested in her music and her group sonica and and uh and nicole's uh just a, a wonderful singer and then also because of uh your recording i also uh, recently interviewed uh, uh lucy yigazera and uh wow. and really enjoyed uh talking with her and uh and uh, discovered a new standard that i was completely unaware of it was a song that she had recorded in one of her early recordings um uh it, a song entitled sweet pumpkin oh yes which, which is one. not a not a <laughs> tune i was familiar with at all i thought oh is this an original composition and then when i looked looked it up i realized no this is this has been around since the 50s yeah and uh so i with tomorrow night being halloween my wife and i have a duo called brass and ivory she yeah. plays she plays piano i play trumpet we do a lot of standards and i thought well since it's halloween i'm going to arrange 
Sweet Pumpkin. I probably won't oh, that's sing great. it. I probably won't sing it anywhere as nice as Lucy does, but I'll do the best I can. Because I think even though it's not Halloween specific, it does talk about a pumpkin. And I think that's hey, kind of a... <laughs> that's a really cute idea. I, I never yeah. I was just thinking about today. I have some Halloween gigs tonight, tomorrow night. And I was trying to think of all the jazz standards that you could, you know, use yeah. like a I, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, Jeepers Creepers, but sweet pumpkin, that's that's yeah, clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's not necessarily Halloween specific, but it does fit right. into the fall paradigm, you right. know. And and we've got songs like that, like we're going to do early autumn and autumn in New York, and oh yeah, and, uh, great tune. As long as uh, and and I'm also looking forward to doing uh, being Boris as I do the Monster Mash. And yes. we plan on having some fun. I don't know if the audience will probably think we're half nuts, but that's okay. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to have a good time for Halloween tomorrow night. There's like a little club here in town and we play every week, but uh, it turned out one of these uh, fell, but well, that's really great. You know, and of course, you know, being in, in uh, New York city and I've had this conversation with a number of other artists who live and work in New York, you are in this wonderful environment where you, it probably wasn't hard at all for you to find a dozen really good singers, you know, to, uh, yeah. to, to record with. And, uh, and they all, all, I, I enjoy every single track on the, on the recording. I mean, I can't even say, you know, which ones I give, I would give preference to, uh, sure. but they're all wonderful. But, you know, the thing that came to my mind, a lot of them are standards. And I thought of, I was thinking about that, you know, in, in, in our world, we, uh, we perform and record over and over and over again, standards songs that have been around for a long, long time. And, and there's two, two kind of modes of thinking. Cause I used to, when I taught jazz history and appreciation at the university, I, I would often tell my students this. I says there's kind of like two traditions that we have in jazz. One is that we still continue to play old tunes. So in other words, we keep our feet firmly planted in the past. I said, but the other tradition is the expectation that we'll use that older material and we'll reach to the sky, so to speak, and create something new with it. And I'd like to hear what your kind of your view of, of standards. I know in the text I sent you, I, I said, would we compare standards to say the symphonies of Beethoven? We never get tired of listening to them. We and they never get old. Yeah, that's a really, really great way to, to phrase it. Um, I, I, I tend to agree that's true for myself as a, as a jazz musician and as a jazz listener. Um, I've always loved the songbook. I love standards. I love the shows. Um, you know, it, for me, you know, some of these songs that even are so, 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 uh, you know, recorded so many times, the couple on my album that have come to mind are all of me in summertime that have been, yep. been done a number of ways. And honestly, I wrote those arrangements because I thought, you know, this could be sung by any vocalist, you know, like that this, this, these are arrangements that, you know, hopefully people would be interested in singing. And um, so I wasn't thinking on this like great artistic level of, you know, finding these gems, though other songs on there, like you turn the tables on me is like one of my favorite standards that is kind of like maybe lesser known. Mm -hmm. um, the one I love belongs to somebody else. You know, these are, these are, these are standards, but they're not, not totally or like right up the middle. Everybody would know them. So I wanted to kind of mix it up. But I, but I do believe that these songs are really timeless 
and that they can be done and they lend themselves to being done in so many different ways. And that um, without reinventing them too, too much, you can still explore different parts of the lyrics, kind of the moods, the feels, playing with the tempos. And to me, that's enough to get creative with the orchestration and, and make something new out of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and I think, would you, would you agree that that's maybe the, the, the modern day challenge as an arranger that you have in terms of, okay, you have a standard and you've decided that you're going to write an arrangement and you, you want it. In other words, you, you, your challenge is to make it sound like something new and fresh. You don't want to just be a carbon copy of Neil Hefty or, or, you know, any of the, well, Tom Costa, any of the great arrangers, uh, you know, that have been around for a long, long time that, that have written you, you find, and I would suggest that that's what I hear on your recording ways to still make these tunes that are part of our musical canon uh, fresh and and new and a, and a reinterpretation of, in, in a sense yet it still has enough of that familiarity that we 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 it hooks into us exactly i think i think one of my big things as a ranger is trying to juxtapose juxtapose this idea of like complexity with simplicity you know some some aspects of these songs can be a little bit more complex and then some aspects are so simple. And, and to me, that's what makes the songs themselves timeless. But also, as you said, the great arrangers, Neil Hefty, Quincy Jones, mm -hmm. um, Thad Jones, I, I think that they all kind of had that in mind whenever they arranged standards as well, that uh, people like Billy Strayhorn, you know, they always wanted to add something new, but still kind of respect what the song was, you know, mm -hmm. without taking mm -hmm. away from kind of the meaning and the feel, and especially from the delivery of whoever's performing it. I think that that's some the real goal of the arrangers to, to capture and to be able to put a spotlight on a performer to let them tell their story through mm -hmm. this canon. Um, I think that's the challenge. And definitely it's hard in a way to also, if you're choosing a more classic style that I did to, as you said, to keep it fresh and not make it sound tired and old and, and you know, like, okay, next, I've kind of heard this before, but, but to give it something um, that is a little bit unique without going outside the box. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I kind of what feeds off of something that you just said that, that resonated with me is it's like a quote that I heard about Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody said that Sinatra was a, was a good actor uh, because even when he would sing a song, he treated the lyrics of every song, like it was a script. Yes. In terms of how to deliver a story. And, uh, and I, and I love that because that fell into my wheelhouse because when I taught, when I taught music history and I would talk to my students about German leader mm -hmm. and, or, or I say a poem by Goethe that, uh, Schubert had then arranged into a, into, into a leader. I'd say, well, a, you right. think of a poem as kind of like, it's a mini drama. It's, it's, it's all there in very few lines, instead of like reading this big, long novel, you get this little story. And I think songs are, the, are a lot that way too. And, and uh, one thing we haven't talked about that I think is also really timeless are lyrics. Uh, yeah. And I think about lyrics of, of songs and how, wow, just, just a, 
a, a great way of expressing human emotion. And uh, I think that's also what's timeless about, about the great American songbook. That's my opinion. If you've got a different yeah. one, I'm welcome to it. But... <laughs> no, no, I think we're in agreement. I, I, yeah. I, I had heard something similar about Frank. You know, I, I think I'd heard that at one point he was saying, like, he's not ready to really perform a song until he understands the character with which he's going to sing it in. That he really wanted to absorb the lyrics mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. he wanted to even sing a note of it. He really wanted to understand what the song was coming from. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I really resonated with me as an arranger. Um, as I listen to different versions of songs and I listen to and I just read the lyrics aloud usually to myself just to think about what they mean or how certain w words can be uh, accentuated or changed or developed um, I think that that's really what makes things interesting to me um, sometimes mm -hmm. I hear arrangements of songs and I can I can tell that like the arranger maybe didn't really listen to the lyrics or or is purposely ignoring them Mm -hmm. um, whether that's intentional or not, but it, that seems like a really purposeful choice that um, that I I have a lot of fun with. <laughs> I like to put yeah. jokes in and things like that. Sometimes, well, if certain words comes up, you know, just throwing in something for for the real diehard listeners, you know, that's always fun. Well, I think that I think that uh, you know one of the things that I I love is is witticisms. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, um, okay. I'll draw on one more example from my teaching. When I when I was trying to teach students how to listen to improvised solos, mm -hmm. I I would I would use the analogy of like when someone tells you a joke and how there's a setup which is familiar material and uh and then and then there's that quick turn that doesn't quite fit and that's what makes you laugh. And I say a good solo, you can be going along and listening. And then all of a sudden the, the improviser puts just a little bit of a twist or a turn or something. And that's what makes it satisfying to listen to uh, because they, yeah. they, they kind of trick your expectations uh, yes. in, into something else. And it's like, I'm trying to think of um, it's like, I heard a recording the other day, I was listening on the uh, Sirius XM jazz channel and uh, it'll come to me in a minute. Who's doing it. Uh, it's a trumpet player. Anyway, had an arrangement of John Coltrane's Naima as, mm -hmm. as a bossa nova. And I mm -hmm. thought it sounded so cool. Um, you know, but I'd never thought of that. And, and, oh my goodness, you know, to take a tune like that, that's sort of sacrosanct and, and uh, have the, the wherewithal to, uh, to, to, to try and put that twist on it, but it worked. I thought, I thought it sounded yeah. great. You know, uh, Eddie Harris. Thank you. Yeah. I just remembered yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, those kind of things are, are fun to do. It's uh, like, uh, my wife and I, we, we do a Beatles, uh, we do eight days a week as a bossa nova. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just fun. cause it freaks people out. People will come up to us and say, was that eight days a week? It didn't quite sound <laughs> like eight days a week. I said, well, it, it was, we just did it differently anyway. Yeah, uh, no, that's, that's the fun, that's the fun <laughs> part of, uh, of music and arranging is in taking these songs, like on the album, the first mm -hmm. track, the one I love belongs to someone else. That's typically mm -hmm. done as a ballad or a slow tune. And, mm -hmm. 
when I was arranging it, that was like my first thought is like, do I really want to do this as a ballad? Just like everything else? No, let's do it as an up-tempo burner opening track. And, and that'll kind of, that tempo alone kind of changes the meaning of the lyrics or even what a difference a day made, uh, which has been done so many different ways, doing it as a fast uh, samba feel, you know, has a completely <laughs> different vibe to it when you just put these things in different contexts and, um, uh, I think that that's kind of the way you you uh, keep these things fresh. I agree. Yeah, yeah. It just keeps you on your toes and it keeps your ears, uh, keeps hooking your ears in. Well, yeah. to shift gears just slightly, because I'm curious to know more about uh, uh, what uh, what's going on with uh, your, your take on older styles of music and dancing uh, in that you front a group uh, called the Revisionists. That's and, right. And you seemed and with that, you're focusing on music for Lindy Hoppers. Uh, what can you tell us about the audience for this music and this style of dancing? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I didn't know a lot about it before I moved to New York City. I'm originally from Los Angeles. Gotcha. And, um, you know, L.A. has a great jazz scene and a great dance scene. But I grew up kind of not really being familiar with the dance scene and, and not really knowing the history of it there. So when I moved to New York, I started working with some bands, obviously, as someone that knows jazz standards and is familiar with earlier styles and things like that. Um, naturally, I fell into playing with some bands that were playing some of these swing dance events. And one of the bands that I would work with um, even was fortunate enough to like travel all, all over the world for these larger events. And very quickly, I realized what a global audience the dance scene is. And, and not only are they just so passionate about the dancing, obviously, but they're so passionate about the music. And I met some amazing, amazing friends over the years, uh, incredible people that just have a deep, deep love for the music that I love. And they love dancing to it in real time. And I found that you know these events can happen everywhere from from Korea to Sweden, all over the mm -hmm. United States and every city. And um, so now I'm really fortunate to know and to be plugged into this scene of people that just, they will travel anywhere all over the world to find the best music to dance to. And the energy in the room when you're, when you're around people like this, um, that are not just incredible dancers, but know the music inside mm -hmm. and out, that you'll mm -hmm. see them making, making the hits. You play a bassy tune and they know every little hit they know everything and um to me it just lifts the bandstand the, the energy on the band um is really an incredible thing um and i was also fortunate to meet my wife who is also a swing dancer and that has been a big part of it for me too is that, uh -huh. that you know that's how we met i was playing on stage she was in the audience dancing uh, eyes meet you know the rest is history <laughs> sounds like you could write a song about that right <laughs> oh, oh I, I could write a book yeah exactly yes. yeah yeah yeah, sure. yeah 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 um, that's that's awesome absolutely. that's awesome yeah well i keep wondering if what, what we need is another we need another injection of interest from hollywood i was thinking back you know about swingers uh right. that came out when in the 90s and uh and then about the uh you know and kind of launched uh big bad voodoo daddy and and uh uh you know bands like that um and then uh also uh swing kids 
which right. was about the 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 young people during the, the uh, uh, Nazi regime that had the underground, you know, kind of swing dancing clubs and things right. like that. And those, you know, it's I think it's funny sometimes how Hollywood, you know, come up with something like that and how that'll fuel a, an interest in that very kind of thing. Um, I know around where I am, I'm in the, in the, uh, Milwaukee area and, yeah. you know, we have a few swing dance clubs and, and, uh, I, you know, the, the, uh, people will come like, like when I've done a big band gig, you know, and they'll, they'll, uh, like playing in the park, for example, mm -hmm. but they'll come out and dance on the blacktop in front of the band, the band show and things like that. So I know there's people out there. It's just, uh, I, I'm just curious, uh, uh, you know, what your experience and what you what you've seen. And it sounds like it's uh, it's, uh, you know, still out there and, and we just need to find the right uh, time, place and audience for it. Uh, but uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, because I think there's some yeah. great there's some great music. Uh, you know, that came out of the big band era and the, right. and I grew up listening to a lot of that because that was the music of my parents. Uh, I probably listened to, you know, uh, Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and, and Artie yeah. Shaw and all of that before I started discovering, you know, some of the more uh, uh, jazz oriented kind of things, modern jazz things. So, yeah right well, it's it's where this all comes from i think that that's what's really interesting you know like i'm learning more and more about how you know of course miles davis dizzy gillespie charlie parker culture and they were all playing in dance bands at the time when they were coming up like their yeah. music their modern music didn't come out of a vacuum you know like they knew the standards they knew the dance tunes and their music was informed by that and to me I feel like if I have any aspiration of being a composer and of being a modern jazz musician and by modern, I mean that it's 2023, like anything that we do is modern because we yeah. are literally living in this modern era, but that you really, to me, like I want to have the same experience that, you know, Dizzy did, you know, I want to be able to play in swing bands and, and he was playing with, you know, Cab Calloway. He was playing all of these great solos, but they were very short. They were just, you know, for, for this dance, ensemble and, and when he was arranging i know he was influenced by that when he oh, started yeah. doing all of his bebop arrangements i know he was influenced by the entire you know era with which he was from so these things it's really interesting to me but i, I love the point that you also talked about with hollywood being such a big influence um because that's such an interesting thing in the swing world in the swing dance world because obviously people really didn't stop dancing but there was a huge huge resurgence of interest after those movies you mentioned and even things mm -hmm. like there was a there was a gap commercial in the 90s where you know just just a 30 second commercial w which featured you know people swing dancing and that alone that commercial got a whole movement of people going so i really i really uh i think that you're right that there's definitely a need for some some more renewed interest as we you know move into this era but of course uh there's other reasons why the big band era kind of ended. And I know that that's oh, yes. something we, we, we definitely want to talk about, but just kind of the economics of the big band era. And, and in 2023, um, obviously you've interviewed all, um, some amazing band leaders, but it's, it's really a labor of love and it's a difficult yep. thing in 2023 to lead a jazz orchestra. Um, I just got back from my tour for the album. We played in Philadelphia, New York, 
Austin, Tucson, and Los Angeles. And there were different bands in every city. This was not mm-hmm. the typical, you know, tour bus, big band, go out on the road. This was, I arrive in the city, I had my suitcase full of charts. Uh-huh. And and we, we just... We just rehearsed that day and we would play that night. And I was working with, uh, in many cases, new vocalists even that that were, um, you know, the real stars of the cities that mm-hmm. we went to. And um, that to me was a real sign of a different time for this music, you know, that instead of everybody getting on the bus and, <laughs> and, and doing hotels and lobby calls with yeah. 18 people, that um, it's it's just really difficult financially to do sure. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the expense of of touring, period, for anyone is is is. You know, I I think I used to I read this somewhere that even when you look amongst uh, modern pop stars, and there certainly are exceptions, but most don't make money on tours. What they make is money on the recordings they sell as a result of the tours, right? And not even through the typical ways of of. Uh... Uh, you know, streaming things like that, but you're right, like like the merch and selling CDs at yep. shows and things like that. Yeah, yep. yeah, it's a completely different model. And I think that, to be honest, I think it it a lot of these models that have been created by you know streaming services and the way that we consume our art now is like completely at at odds with how to make you know large ensemble jazz music accessible. Yeah, yep. it's, it it's yep. literally the hardest thing. Um, so I really, I'm amazed that there are as many people that are out there that are doing this. It, 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 it makes me so happy to see that people are still fighting for this music. Well, it's, you know, and just fighting, fighting for jazz period. Right. Uh, because I know like in, in my community, I, uh, I made a decision last May that I wanted to establish a regular jazz night in my community Waukesha, Wisconsin. And I contacted this local uh, club and I said, look, uh, I just want to come out and play. I says, I'm, I'll come out and play for tips. And that's how we've been able to get it established. And yeah. every once in a while, the club will slip us a little bit here and there if they have a good night, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, we, I, I, I'm lucky Danny in that I'm retired and I don't have to rely on my music making to make a living. And uh, so I can go out and play because I mean, I have so much fun. I, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I have to do something. I don't golf. So, <laughs> 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 you know, and, uh, and, you know, I love playing and I love jazz and I believe yeah. jazz is an art form that deserves to be played, to be consumed, to be, you know, it, it, it deserves a place in our culture. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I sound like a crusader. Maybe that's what I am, but, um, uh, I have one group that I go out with a trio that we play and it's, it's, uh, I play trumpet and sing. I have a tuba player and a guitar player and very minimalist, but I always yank the chain of my audience because they say, we're going to play music you've never heard of by people you've never heard of. (laughs) <laughs> but I think I think you're going to enjoy it because most everything we play, I we purposely is like I said we play music older than dirt, and uh, we I purposely try to play stuff that's that's pre 1930, 
Yeah. And, uh, but there's, uh, there's still, you know, good stuff to happen there. And I'm, I'm happy to hear about this, you know, what you're telling me about interest in dancing and, and swing era kinds of stuff. And I'm, I'm likewise hoping that it gets, get people interested in, in uh, the music of our culture and our country and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, oh, so, absolutely. And it's an uphill battle. I mean, I, you know, I go out, I also have a, an eight piece modern yeah. jazz group. And uh, th this is made up really some of the best players around. So I always give them a guarantee, uh, you know, when we play a gig, but I very often pay for that out of my own pocket because what I get from the club, you know, they're not going to cover for what we want, but I, uh, I figure I chalk that up to the expense of a, of a hobby. My hobby's an expensive one, I guess. but <laughs> yeah. anyway, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I keep trying to have a belief it's going to change, but, uh, Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think yeah. it can, cause it's great music and there's no way around it. And all it takes, and I don't know if you experience this, but all it takes is one or two people to come up to me at a gig and say, this is great. I have never heard this kind of music before. What do you call it? You know, <laughs> and, <laughs> right, you're, you're, and, you're introducing them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I feel like, a, 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 you know, almost like a missionary <laughs> and I've converted yeah. another one, you know, right. And, and that's enough to keep me going. Well, anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I always say that at my shows, I, I say, you know, how many of you have been to a big band show? How many of you heard a jazz orchestra before? And it's so funny to me that, that, I mean, I, I guess surprising or not surprising, but you know, sometimes it's like 40% of the audience like has never heard this music before. Yep. And, um, and then I realized like, I take it really serious because like, okay, now I have a responsibility because if I don't put on a good show, they might never be interested ever again. I might, right. I might shut the door if they go home and say, wow, was that big band music? That was awful. You know, like that was, <laughs> that wasn't good. I'm never going to listen to that. So I really take it seriously, like, oh, this is an opportunity to make new fans, which I think is, is like you said, it's so important to introduce people to kind of the history of this country's music. You know, it's like just, you know, bringing it right back. And uh, I think I think there definitely is room for it now that things are going in, in crazy directions with technology and AI and oh, yeah. um, all of this music that is electronic. Not Not say I don't like this music. I think that there's definitely a place for it. I think that so much music can be made with one person at home with a laptop with no other human beings, um, no other outside input. And that's great. I think that that's a really amazing thing that we can be creative in that way. But mm -hmm. there's something really beautiful about jazz in that it's it's a community aspect. You know, you were saying you bring the music to the community, but the music and the musicians themselves is such a beautiful community that that is an aspect to me that needs to be shared to show the camaraderie of a band that to see mm -hmm. people playing together, joking together, that, that understand this language. Um, that's something that I really think is, is so important to share with people. Well, you know, there, there's a uh, two or three big bands here in the area that, you know, you, I sometimes have the opportunity to go and sub with and, uh, yeah. you know, and it, it's not about the bread it's about the hang and right. you know, you go, you play, take a break and you have an opportunity to hang with other people who love the music just the same as you. And you, you know, re reignite your acquaintances and so forth. And that's, that's really what, what makes it happen. I think that, uh, yeah, to the, uh, 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 
people who are not musicians, they they sometimes have a hard time wrapping their head around that. And I, I used to joke with my students. I said, you know, musicians are the only people whose their work is their play and their play is their work. You never hear about plumbers calling each other up on a weekend and say, hey, let's get together and go fix some pipes just for fun. <laughs> but musicians yeah. do that all the time, you know. And uh, so uh, anyway. Well, it's yeah, no, uh, tr it, trumpet trumpet players and plumbers aren't too different. No, no we're just, we're just <laughs> messing around with some metal tubes. Yeah. So, you know, there's, yeah. there's some yeah. similarities. But no, yes, and, and really we all have point. to do we all have to deal with evacuation of wastewater in one way or another, right? Ah <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, anyway. So kind of switching gears again. I'm uh, I'm uh, curious to know, Danny, as a composer and arranger, who inspired you? What turned on the light for you to become a, a composer and arranger in the big band idiom? Yeah, that's a really that's a really great question. So I grew up in Los Angeles and I was really fortunate that my neighbor growing up uh, was the trombone player for the Tonight Show band with Jay Leno at the time. Uh, Matt Finders was his name. Oh. And um he really introduced me to a lot of music when I was young and I had a really great new strong music program um, where I went to school. It was Lindero middle school. The band director actually just retired Matt McKagan. And uh, he introduced us to so much great music at a young age. And I remember I was in like sixth grade and I got a box set of Duke Ellington and count Basie. And oh. it was like, it was like, you know, eight, eight discs with like hundreds and hundreds of songs on there. And I just was lost. I had no idea what this music was, but I was like, what is happening? This is so cool. And there were some, you know, there was some later stuff in there. I mean, there was like Atomic Basie was in there, but then there was also some like later Ellington. And I was just completely enthralled at such a young and impressionable age that I just listened to it constantly. I didn't know what was going on. I couldn't tell what the chords were. I couldn't name things but I could sing along and, and I could listen to it a lot and listen to the textures. So I think that those two bands were probably my first real interest in jazz music. And then of course, somebody at some some point said, you should get, you know, some Miles Davis. And I remember I got ESP and Kind of Blue. And that was kind of my first early listening of like modern records. And I was equally confused and dumbfounded and amazed. Like, just like, what what is this? This is so different than every other kid my age is listening to music. But uh, I, I think that deep down, like those artists will always have like just a special place because it was really the first. You know what I mean? Yeah, I sure. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. My experience was just a little bit different. But mm -hmm. yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. My turn on was was Stan Kenton. Oh, yeah. And it was when I was in high school. And, uh, and I uh, remember Stan Kenton came to the local college for a concert and uh, uh, I went and I will never, ever forget when they opened up doing Malaguena and it yeah. just blew my hair back. I mean, and it's still back. I mean, I just thought, <laughs> Oh my gosh, you know, and playing that chart later in life and knowing that, you know, those, the trumpets are all coming in on high ease above the staff and just, you know, incredible you know, screaming sounds, but yeah. I, I later developed a love and a, an appreciation for both Ellington and, and Basie in that, um, in 19 it was 1982. 
I had a good buddy of mine from St. Louis. This is when I was at, uh, I was in grad school at North Texas. And, uh, and he said, Hey, I heard the Basie bands playing in Dallas. I said, let's go. And I said, okay. So we, we jumped in my car, we drove down and found out it wasn't a concert. Somebody had hired the Basie band to play for a dance. And mm. uh, which didn't matter to us one way or the other, we were there to hear the band. And so we worked our way up through the crowd to where they had the rope, you know, in front of the band and uh, nobody said anything to us, but I, I had the opportunity to stand all night right in front of Freddie green. And, wow, and, and then of course, Basie was just, just to my left. And uh, I think, let's see, I think it was Butch miles playing drums that night. And I can't remember who the bass player was, but, the thing that was so cool was standing there watching those guys work and how they were just, they were just like a, a V8 engine that had been tuned so perfectly, so smooth, so powerful, so driving, yet you didn't feel any bumps at all in the road. I mean, it was just, it was a gas. That was my turn on to the Basie band. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah, that's incredible. I'm jealous. Well, <laughs> well, it's one of those experiences that I, you know, and I know out in LA, it's, there's, you never know who you're going to run into because it's, there's also such a, a wonderful uh, collection of great people. When I was in uh, college, we, we had taken our jazz ensemble out to uh, the Orange Coast Jazz Festival in Costa Mesa. One night, some buddies of mine said, hey, we need to go up to Dante's inferno because super sax is playing and and i said okay so we 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 went up to catch super sax and we're we're sitting there and as i recall dante's at that time dante's inferno had these like circular booths that you sat in well anyway med flory gets up and he's thanking the audience and he says and we'd like to introduce a couple of our friends who are here tonight and sitting in the booth right next to us was Henry Mancini and Bill Holman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, I was like, I was like, <laughs> oh, my you? gosh, you know, I'm breathing the same air as these people. This is <laughs> I, I can't quite take it, you know, kind of thing. It's just those are just uh, some experiences that are that are just awesome that can turn us on and uh, to music. And and I, you know, you write about Basie and Ellington. Ellington was, you know, such a progressive uh, writer for his time period and uh, lots of innovative kinds of, of ways of uh, orchestrating for the, for the jazz big band. So it's just uh, yeah. really great. Well, now I want to really drill down. I want to know more about Danny. So tell us <laughs> about your creative process. What inspires you when you write? Yeah, well, I think for me, the important thing now, as I've I've gotten a little older and been working in New York, is just to write whether I'm inspired or not. I think okay. that that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, if I really waited for inspiration, I would probably wouldn't write anything. Okay. And I think it was was Ellington who said, "Don't don't give me, don't give me um, inspiration. Give me a deadline." Right. And uh, I think that that's been really true for me in my entire time. I. If, if I just know, okay, I'm going to write a piece on this and I don't give myself a thing, then it generally never happens. But if I say, you know what, I'm going to book a show that we just play the music of this or we just do this or I'm going to write a piece for this concert or if someone commission, commissions me to write something, 
um, then, then I tend to look at my schedule and say, okay, I've got this amount of time to, to write and to be inspired. And then I kind of, um, force myself to be inspired basically. Like once, once I'm looking at a empty, uh, you know, empty staff, or if I'm working in, uh, you know, notation program, everything's empty, it's blank canvas. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, that feeling still doesn't really change for me after having written, um, many, many songs, originals, and many arrangements uh, for big band and small group, I still kind of look at this blank canvas and say, okay, like, I need to figure something out. And generally, at this point, there's no inspiration. Um, and then I try to free write and just kind of uh, see what comes out. Um, sometimes this is the method. Sometimes I have things a little bit more planned. But generally, when I get to like, let's say like 50% where like, okay, this is like a 50% of an original song or it's got some lyrics or if it's got some part of a piece, then I take a step back and I usually wait a day and I listen to it again. And then I usually feel inspiration. It's it's so funny. Every time I, I, I get to like 50% and then I'm like, oh, I kind of like this. <laughs> Not like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm terrified with anything, mm-hmm. but oh, I hear the potential. And sometimes I'll, I'll completely rewrite that 50%. I'll say, okay, now I know what I want to do, actually. I'll, you know, just throw that all in the trash and then start all over. And then it's much faster. So generally that that first 40%, 50%, that's what takes me the longest. And then once I'm inspired, it's like, just like, boom, zero to 100. And then I'm like, okay, finish line. Let's get this done. Let's get it in front of the band. Let's play it. Um, yeah, that's kind of always been my process. And um you know, some, some lessons I've had with some great teachers, uh, studied with Michael Mossman recently, John Clayton and Darcy James argue, and, and they've mm-hmm. given me all some really great tips on how to, you know, kind of go about prepping for a composition or basically how to do some of this pre-work, basically just giving yourself all the right tools to, uh, go on a musical journey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, uh, you, you mentioned some people that are, that are uh, really high power, high powered arrangers and band leaders. And I, you know, and I happen to also think about Alan Ferber, who's been on yeah. the show. And Alan told me when I asked him that question, he said, he said, well, when I can't find inspiration, I just make myself write the worst piece of music I can think of to write. And, uh, and then once I get that out of my system and then, then I can kind of move on. And as and it sounds like sort of, um, like you create your own inspiration, you get something out there, you get something down on paper or digital, however you write, and uh, and then you find what's catchy and you run with it. Exactly. And, uh, because, uh, yeah, you're right. You can't wait around for inspiration because uh, right. it's not something that's always timely. And sometimes you have to get <laughs> things done even when you're not inspired. I can't remember. I think it was uh, Thomas Edison that once said uh, coming up with new inventions was 2% inspiration and 98% perspiration. So, yes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of that same, same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, well, I'm just kind of curious, uh, you know, you're familiar with, uh, with a number of other big band leaders in New York and I've had a few of them on my show. I mentioned Alan and, Jai Lee and Darcy and Steve Feifke and, and Sam Blakesley uh, wow. and all of them 
creating just wonderful music. Uh, do, you, do you feel like there's anything about your arranging or, or your writing that, that makes you uh, distinct or, or maybe even different from, from these other uh, great arrangers and band leaders? Yeah. It, it's an incredible thing being around all the people that you've named. Like I've, I've played most of their music and, and know them and um, have heard their music in New York. So I, I think that's really an incredible thing just to be a part of that community and be able to hear them. Um, I'd say probably the thing, at least right now with the music that I'm working on currently, uh, is really just a focus on and s some of this more classic swing sounds. Um, I have this record that that is out now, um, Voices, but I also have a lot more big band music coming on the way. Um, which is really exciting. And, and I think the, really the focus, a lot of that is, is swing. And I think that that is something that I've really been passionate about. And um, I have a lot of original music. I have a lot of modern uh, compositions and more exploratory things, but right now my big band music is really focused on that. And, um, you know, making stuff that's right down the middle, that feels good. That's fun to play. Um, sometimes I think there's really a place for music that's really intellectual. That's really mm -hmm. difficult to perform that almost requires like true virtuosity from everyone in the band. I think that a lot of writers write for the best possible improvisers, the best possible section players. And the music is extremely difficult even for them. Um, I've been in some of these situations where I'm with like some of the best saxophone players in the world, some of the best drum players, and they're like struggling. They're like, wow, mm -hmm. this is hard. <laughs> and, and to hear it from some of these people that are just literally probably like, amongst the top 10 best people on their instrument. It's like, okay, this is really hard. I, what, what I really strive for is something that's a little bit, I don't want to say like simpler or easier, but just that after the biggest compliment for me is basically like when people play my music, I want them to like feel like they did a great job. Mm -hmm. If I want them to walk off the stage and be like, I sounded great on that. Like I'm very confident with the way I played. If some trumpet player or lead trumpet player tells me they get off the stage, like, yeah, I sounded great on that. Like, to me, that means that like I wrote for their mm -hmm. strengths appropriately, right? Like I wrote for what I thought that they would sound good. And because um, at the end of the day, I want everyone to feel good about their own playing. I think that that's mm -hmm. what Ellington did. I think that's what Basie did. I think that they were masters of knowing the ins and outs of their ensemble mm -hmm. in a way that um, ultimately makes it better for the audience. Because if if the musicians are are feeling it, if they're really, really um digging each other it, it completely translates to how the experience is perceived by the audience so i think that that's something that i'm most interested in right now i think there's there's a lot of value in that and and while you were speaking i happened to i just happened to have some ideas i think there are times when you know as a composer we can we can write for ourselves in other words, what we exactly want to express, we yeah. can write because we want the musicians who play with us to feel challenged. Right. Because sometimes happiness comes from overcoming our challenges and maybe they've had to shed apart to, right. to, to overcome that. But then there's also, from what you're saying, and I agree wholeheartedly, when it's 
great to have a chart that's just a nice easy swinger and lays in there and feels <laughs> yeah. it feel it's like scratching your back when you've got that itch that you can't reach and it feels so good and that's i yeah. think same way with like playing music so you're writing you know not just for yourself or to be challenging but you're writing like you said with the musicians in mind that they're going to have a good time and they're going to enjoy playing what they're playing and and that's uh and that will come across the audience i think there's there's a lot of different levels that one one could approach things and i i i agree that uh that uh you know there's nothing like like you know when you get into a good groove and it's just fun to play, it feels good. Right. Sounds good. Right. Yeah. That, to me, that's, that's what I've learned a lot from the dance music, you know? Sure. Um, that to me, it's like, you know, I, I find a lot of times in, in a modern jazz world, um, we'll get into a groove, the band's swinging, everybody's feeling good. And like the jazz mentality is like, okay, the song's over. Now let's do something completely different. Let's do a waltz. Uh, in even time and uh, let's do a you know a latin in seven four let's do the opposite of what we did and and the fun thing i think about the dance community is that when you get something that gets everybody on their feet you you see every dancer from you know sure. the teenagers all the way up to the, the dancers in their 80s everyone's on their, on their feet you know it's amazing to think okay maybe we should just do another song that's maybe like just a couple clicks faster or just, but just keep it in the groove, you know, yeah, like it yeah. worked. Let's not reinvent something right now. And uh, that was a really, really important lesson to me that I've learned from playing for the dance community. It's like, if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, like don't, yep. don't, you don't need to make this, your set list into this big intellectual thing. Always. Of course, there's a time and place for everything. And, um, you know, context is everything. But, but a lot of the times I think we shy away from that as musicians, we think, we did that. Okay, now let's do something completely different. And uh, yeah. I think, you know, sometimes we just need to keep keep going. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like it's like playing the blues. I I I, I always say, you know, it always feels good to play the blues. And uh, you know, it's like getting a hug from your grandma. You know, that's the kind of <laughs> yeah. how good it feels. But anyways, all right. Well, I, I want to shift gears again. And and I'm going to yeah. kind of combine a couple of questions uh, because the, the answer might be similar for both of them. One is, uh, now, based on your professional experience, uh, what is the best advice that you can offer, uh, you know, and this is based on what you've experienced and what you've observed about other professional musicians. And I'm yeah. thinking primarily, what advice would you give to a student or a young person who's aspiring toward a career in music? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've had some really nice opportunities lately to to work with young students and to work with aspiring jazz musicians. So um, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, you know, sometimes you only have an hour with a masterclass at a college or with a high school. And it's such a little amount of time to to really sum up really what what takes a lifetime to develop this music is is not easy um i wouldn't say you know it's impossible to have a career in this i think it's definitely possible and i think you know i'm 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 kind of always one to say you know if you have a dream you should see it through no matter what um and and i'm always encouraging people to you know if they want to move to new york city or move move anywhere around the country to play music or anything like that i'm always the first person to encourage it but um 
the things that I see the most right now with aspiring jazz musicians is um, the crux of using the iReal book. I think that this is the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that, uh, you know, so many musicians that we know and love just knew thousands of songs because they grew up with them, because they were playing them. Um, it, it, it truly is a language and knowing the tunes and knowing the standards, both by jazz composers and by American songbook composers, um, that's like our job as musicians. And I see a lot of younger musicians that are just relying way too much on apps and, um, you know, real book like things to kind of circumvent using their ears because mm -hmm. ultimately if you learn these songs by ears, you're developing your ears, you're developing the language and um, you're ultimately listening. And I see, as I, I go around, I see so many people that are just reading and they're not listening to their bandmates as much as they are because they're, they're trying to learn the song while, while they're playing it. And to me, that really does a disservice to the music on so many levels. So I, I try to tell people just to learn as many tunes as possible. I, I'm not a tune person, in my opinion, by any means, because um, I spend my time doing way too many things like leading a big band and arranging and, and writing and singing and playing. But I have some friends in New York that just know truly thousands of tunes yeah. and I aspire to be like that. And I'm working on that always in, in my practice, just learning tunes. And I noticed that it's almost a one-to-one. -one. If, if any musicians take the time to learn that, they're just better musicians. I can see mm -hmm. it, but mm -hmm. once they learn that many music, it doesn't matter you know, so much about everything else. Like they understand the language and they're able to play so many songs. And um, I think that, that if that would be like my one thing, that, that would be it. I think you, you hit a really important nail on the head. It's really about developing your ear and your, your listening memory and, and knowing where, where things go. I, I won't, I won't reveal when I finally learned this, but you know, when it comes to improvisation and you're studying all the chords and scales and things that go with various uh, chords or harmonic progressions. It's not so much about what you get under your fingers. It's what you're getting into your head. In other right. words, the ear training associated, I mean, being able to, to be able to hear what that minor seventh chord is supposed to sound like in your head before you ever, you know, rather than just knowing, okay, well, here's the fingerings for, uh, you know, a D minor seventh, you know, and, and, uh, but without, uh, grasping the ear training aspect of it and learning a tune by uh, really getting into what's the intervallic relationships. I know my wife, my wife is a PhD music theorist and yeah. she is, she's, she has a much better ear than I do. And she's just brilliant. And she was helping me. We were working on sweet pumpkin last night yeah. and because we're going to perform it Tuesday. And she finally said to me, she says, listen, here's the here's the interval span that you're 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 dealing with in that first phrase and mm -hmm. keep that in mind you know and it was a fifth and i thought okay and once i got that i went oh yeah now i can make that you know that particular uh interval jump that i was missing and uh and so i think your advice is just as is incredible is the listening and the ear training and and and, and uh, getting that in your heads well that's wow. really great that's a uh, great advice. And I always ask those kinds of things because I do have a listenership that does uh, not a lot, but I do have a certain percentage of my listeners that are in their, in their twenties 
I don't have a lot of teens, but I do have some in their 20s. Um, well, I assume that you are constantly writing or or pushing yourself to, to write. And uh, can you tell us anything about any new charts that you've uh, you've written recently? Sure, sure. Well, uh, last night at Birdland, I was really fortunate to uh, have written two charts for a great trumpeter friend, Benny Benack III. Oh, sure. And it was his it was his debut big band show um, with another uh, great friend, Christian Wiggs, who put the band together and conducted. And uh, Christian and Benny asked me to write two new charts for that performance at Berlin last night. So it was really great. I went out and heard it and the band sounded incredible. And um, to me, like hearing the charts live is, is really the most important thing. If I can always, you know, if I'm commissioned to write something, I always try to make it or really request that I can hear a recording because um, I like to edit things. That's one thing I like. I think that I'm a constant editor, um, even hearing things. Um, multiple times I might decide, you know, what if this was a little bit better? What if this was that? And I, I love to just tinker with things and make them perfect. Um, I mentioned earlier kind of about my percentage of, you know, being inspired around 50%. Well, the other hard part, of course, is knowing when something is completely done. You know, I'm, I'm definitely one of those people like, you know, the poets that would, uh, after their, their works are published, they, they still want to go back and change a word or two and things like that. Like, I'm 100% that person. Uh, up until when things are recorded. And, and that's why I'm so happy to put music out because now it means that I, I don't have to edit things. But before they're recorded, I uh, I love to rewrite things. And, and for me, I know when something is done, when an arrangement is done, when I don't hate any part of it. Okay. When you don't <laughs> you know? hate it. Okay, I got you. No, just, just any part of it. You know, yeah. if, if yeah. I like all of it, but then there's this one line that I really hate, all right, I got to change that one line. And then I listen back and maybe I don't love everything, yeah. but I don't hate any of it. I go, okay, I think sure. it's done. So I gotcha. I gotcha. I <laughs> it's gotcha. kind of a funny thing, but that's the way my, my brain works. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all different. We all have ways of doing things and uh, you know, it's real similar. Uh, I can think about when I was writing research articles and one of my professors used to always say, listen, you just have to decide that it's done and let it go. And, yep. uh, you know, otherwise you're going to be here till hell freezes over trying to get it done, yep. you know? Yep. Well, yep. anyway, speaking of, of, uh, new charts and, and recording, do you have any new recording projects planned or in the works? Yeah, let's see. So I just, uh, I'm, tomorrow night I'm playing the album release of one of the vocals that's featured on Vo voices. That's going to be, um, hannah gill's new album which i was really fortunate to do all the arrangements for oh okay. so her new album is called everybody loves a lover and oh, i was wonderful. really fortunate we've we've been we've been longtime collaborators um even before she moved to new york city and um yeah she asked me to kind of arrange what what she's calling her dream record so it was really an honor to to do all the arrangements for that and that's a wonderful eight eight or nine nine piece group i guess so that was uh -huh. a really fun one um, I'm also working on a new project with another uh, vocalist that was featured on Voices, and that's um, Siren Tip, who sang so many stars on the, on the Voices album. Uh -huh. And uh, we we actually are doing a really, really exciting project where um, she's received some grants to write a new piece that's based on um, climate change research, actually. Huh. So we just went, we went out to the coast of Oregon, and we talked with... Um, 
these scientists that actually go on ocean explorations and they study microorganisms in the ocean and how they're affected by um, different changes in the water and the temperature. And so we're actually writing a suite of, of music. This is going to be a modern jazz orchestral suite uh, that we're co-composing mm. together. So mm -hmm. we're actually going to be working on that for, for the next year. And I'm, I'm just so excited because she's an incredible artist and a composer. And this project is really something that's so interesting since we've already met with all these scientists. Um, their their work has been like really inspiring you know as jazz musicians i feel like we kind of get into our own zone and then all of a sudden i was just like you know on a boat talking with people that their life and research is like all in these microscopes on the tables and i was kind of like out of body moment like what, what what am i doing here i'm a jazz musician but this was so interesting mm -hmm. and it really it really lent itself to a lot of musical inspiration that i'm i'm really excited to share yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think it's really cool when we can find extra musical sources that uh, kind of uh, light our flame. Uh, I know I interviewed, um, actually, uh, uh, his episode just went uh, public last week, Quinson Notchoff. And he just finished or is in the process of doing a project where he uh, he did some consultation with a physicist. And uh, and also is working with some uh, dancers and so on. And, and, and it was just really interesting what he had to say about his uh, his adventures uh, there kind of crossing yeah. into the scientific realm and finding, you know, that that kind of inspiration there. And and, um, you know, and I, I every spring. I go in, I do a guest lecture for a colleague of mine who teaches philosophy, and he always likes me to go in and talk about composers, how composers have responded to nature and the environment through their music. Yeah. And uh, and I always uh, kind of find that uh, fascinating that we can be inspired by, you know, uh, whether it's Debussy's The Le Maire or, or uh, Strauss's Alpine Symphony or, you know, things like that, because these great uh, features that are in our natural world and how they can uh, inspire us. Or in, in the case with, uh, you know, global warming threats to the, these sorts of things. So I think that's that's really fantastic. Well, I only have two more questions to ask you, Danny, and then we're going to wrap things up because uh, we've been at this uh, about an hour. Uh, but uh, um, what I'm really curious to know from your perspective is uh, what is it that makes jazz unique from other types of music? Mm, yeah, that's a really great, great question. I think for me, it's a mix of having a language you know, so much of what we talked about already is just about this idea of um, like a shared canon of music that we have this this tons of things that we're, we're putting our feet down, as you said, and we're uh, learning from. So that's something that I feel like is really different than other styles of music, which, you know, basically can you can um, go off and do things. But I, I think that jazz has that firmly planted and then mixed with improvisation. I think that those are the two things that really resonate with me that make jazz. Like what is jazz? You know, some people ask me, do you think this is jazz? You know, playing some music, do you think this is jazz? Sometimes I say yes. Sometimes I'd say no, you know, is jazz the blues? Is jazz swing? Is jazz, uh, you know, the, the spang, spang, a lang rhythm, you know, what is jazz? Um, mm -hmm. I think that improvisation is an important one. And also just this, this language, this lexicon that we've developed 
um, I think those two things make it really special, unique, and kind of make it into a community. Mm-hmm. I think there are so many artists mm-hmm. now um, that maybe are getting coined as being like jazz musicians or, or even saviors of jazz music and things like that. Uh, but they don't come from the community. They, they they didn't you know learn this music. They have no history of knowing things about the artists that made the music. They don't know who's playing the music. You know, and, and I think that's really an important element is to be from the community and for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's what makes things uh, special about jazz music. Yeah, I think that I think you hit the nail on the head. There's something about the shared language and the. Uh the uh community i mean it's like you know you either you or i could go into a club and we could we could call a tune and it's like unless of course it's something very esoteric but we're not going to be stupid and do that if we just walk into a <laughs> club we're going to call up a standard sure. right? right and uh, you know we could walk and say hey, let's do uh, all the things you are and you know what 99 and 9 tenths percent of the time that rhythm section is well I'm making the assumption because I'm a horn player you're a horn player that the rhythm sure. section is going to know that tune and we're going to be able to play it right. and and the only question that might come up come up is oh what key do it in you know sure. and that's it exactly but there's that right. shared uh that shared uh understanding language that we we have and i think uh that doesn't necessarily agree uh, uh, i mean exist in uh other other realms uh the blues might be might be a a good you know second second to that but uh, i think jazz is really is unique i think that's great well the last question i have for you danny is uh because i try to be as thorough as possible with my interview questions but i know i'm not perfect and so I want to ask you if there's anything else you would like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about. That's a, <laughs> all of your questions have been, have been great, but that's really considerate <laughs> to say that. But we, we've covered so much and, and I really appreciate you taking this time to talk with me about all of this. And um, I, I'd say just closing thoughts. I, I just, I hope people enjoy the voices album. You know, I really, I really made it, you know, thinking that, you know, I think that there are a lot of great, solos on there's a lot of great improvisation happening but there's also a lot of great you know vocalists that i hope that you know a lot of people can enjoy i think that the the different vocalists on there are so unique they come from you know such diverse backgrounds that there's really something for everybody there i think that that is the big thing for me is that you know maybe you you might have heard of a few of them or or maybe you're a huge fan of of some of them but maybe you can discover more about each one of their music through this album. And I, and I hope that um, your listeners enjoy it. Well, and I can't imagine they wouldn't. I I would suggest that voices is sort of like a Whitman's sampler of, uh, of uh, music. And just like a Whitman's sampler has lots of delicious chocolates that you can't possibly not enjoy. uh, I would say voices is very much in that same realm. Each singer brings a different flavor, a different, a little bit different twist to things. And that's one of the things I found personally very enjoyable about the recording. And then the common thread is that everything is just wonderfully swinging and a very ebullient, uh, nice, uh, nice feel to it. So congratulations on on your work, Danny. And listeners, definitely check, check out uh, Voices. 
uh, Danny's newest album. So that's, uh, that's great. And I want to thank you, Danny, for taking time to talk with me today. I know you're a busy professional and I appreciate you taking time uh, to, uh, to be on my show. And I want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so much, Craig. It really, it, this, this has been a true pleasure. Um, it was great to chat with you. I hope we can do it again. And um, yeah, yeah, really pleasure is all mine. Well, very good. Well, I hope to get to New York one of these days and I'll look you up if I get there. Oh, that would be great. All Please right. You, know. you bet. Take care now. Yeah. All right. All right. Thank you. My discovery composer of the week is the Puerto Rican composer, Amari Vare Torregrosa. Born June 14, 1922, he died October 30, 1995. His formal studies in music began as a piano student of Olympia Morel Campos and Emilio Baccio Passarel in Ponce. After graduating from the University of Puerto Rico with a general arts degree in 1943, he served in the United States Air Force. Following this military service, he enrolled in the New England Conservatory of Music, studying composition with Carl McKinley and graduating in 1949. He also studied at the Manhattan School of Music in New York City and with Pizzetti at the Academia di San Cecilia in Rome. Returning to Puerto Rico in the early 1950s, he composed a number of film scores for the new Division of Community Education of the Government of Puerto Rico. In 1960, he joined the faculty of the Puerto Rico Conservatory of Music as a teacher of theory and composition, remaining in that post until his death. Verre also served as an advisor to the Institute of Puerto Rican Culture, established in 1955, and developed there an archive of Puerto Rican music, which since 1966 has formed an important part of the holdings of the Puerto Rico General Archive. In recognition of this and other contributions to music in Puerto Rico, Verre was elected to membership in the Puerto Rico Academy of Arts and Sciences. Verre's compositions of the 1950s and 1960s, especially in the fields of film, ballet, and song, contributed to a strong nationalist movement in Puerto Rican music, which especially drew upon native rhythms and melodic turns. His later work displayed a broader approach, with polytonality occasionally evident. Verre wrote extensively on Puerto Rican music. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Verre's Enseo Rustico, performed by Raymond Torres Santos. That wraps episode number 167. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artists' performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, 
I will be interviewing jazz guitarist and Michigan State University associate professor Randy Napoleon. Other upcoming interviews include alternative rock power pop singer-songwriter Doug Albrechts of the band Little Falls Trophy, jazz drummer extraordinaire Billy Kilson, and poet and singer-songwriter Julian Broloski. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So, until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day. Thank you.